You're listening to Calvary Spokane's teaching series on the Sermon on the Mount. Would you turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5 as we continue our study there? We're picking up uh, the conversation with our Savior in verse 43. Chapter 5, verse 43. If you don't mind, if you'd stand with me as we read this section together. Matthew chapter 5, verse 43. It reads as follows It says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, What are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that. Let's start with prayer. Father, I ask as we look again at your word that your Holy Spirit would help us, Lord, that we don't want to be simply people who um, know what your word says, Lord. We want to be compelled by it. We don't want to just hear a message, Lord. We want the truth that we hear to be profound in our life life-changing. And so, Lord, especially as we deal with this issue above any other, we pray that you'd give us your wisdom, your grace, but also your compassionate heart, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We're looking at the sixth and, and final contrast that Jesus presents in this portion of the Sermon on the Mount where he really compares his teachings to those of the religious leaders, in particular of the Pharisees, and those who uh, were viewed by the general population as being the authorities on what Scripture had to say. It's been come, become clear as we've gone through this section that there was a significant difference between the way that Jesus viewed the law of Moses and, and as opposed to that of the religious leaders which is also evidenced by the way that the common people responded as we saw at the end of this section where it says the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as the teachers of the law. It wasn't just simply that he was expressing truth, but he did it with a profound implication that was really life-changing. And of course, this caused the very leaders of the Jewish people to hate Jesus. By correcting their teaching, he was essentially undermining their authority and threatening their power, position, and status within society, so that later on, John would tell us in the 11th chapter of his gospel that they said that if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So that there's kind of a contextualization, if you will, as Jesus is saying, love your enemies, many of those who were in the audience listening to him were exactly those kinds of people. They were very antagonistic. And I know that we assume that all people at that time, if they'd heard the words of Jesus, would have been attracted and enamored and drawn to his truth. But in fact, those who saw him as being a very threat to their place in the greater society actually hated him to the point where they plotted for his destruction and eventually succeeded. In this series of commentaries, Jesus touches on six theological issues that really did uh, attack those who were opposed to him. When he said to them in verse 17, he said, I I have not come to abolish or to annul or destroy the law and the prophets, but rather I've come to fulfill them, to complete them. One commentator put it, he says, I've come to pull it all together into a vast panorama that is a picture that you can understand, that you can really grasp the heart of God. Which is why six times he said to them over and over again, you have heard that it was said, referring to those religious authorities. You've heard that it was said that 
uh, you're to do this or you're to do that, but I'm now going to tell you what the Bible actually says, what, what God's heart really is all about and what it really means to you. And as we've looked at him, he's told us things, for example, like being angry only differs from murder by a matter of degree. That we're not to allow anger to be the controlling passion or dominating passion of our lives. That lust is only the first step towards a life of sexual immorality. Or that divorce is never God's best for his people. That we should let our word be our bond. And that when we confront evil and seek after justice, we need to make sure that we are being just and not evil in doing that, that we are not seeking revenge or retaliation, that we don't take the law into our own hands. Which brings us to this kind of final example. Really, it's the, the pinnacle of the pyramid, the capstone that holds all of it together. He's saying, I'm telling you that you need to love your enemies and not just simply those who you like. And it would be so much easier if Jesus had used a different word for love. I mean, in the Greek language, there were options. You could talk about the love of eros or the love of attraction. Don't, if he said, love those whom you're attracted to, I don't think any of us would have any difficulty. Or he could use the word storge, the, the love of family. He says, love those to whom you're related to and you have a family connection. And I, you know, I would be pretty good. I could say that as I look at our extended family, I can feel that way to most, about most of them, not all. Because some people you, well, anyway. Um, and if he had just said, if I was to have a filial love, a love of, of, of affection and friendship, people that I kind of click and connect with, here again, this would be something that's doable. But when he uses the word agape, when he talks about this agapao love, this kind of all-encompassing, altruistic love that loves in advance of whatever action comes your way, suddenly I find myself pressed in a way that challenges just about every moment of my life. And yet he told us throughout his gospels that this was really the, 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 the pillars upon which the faith of the Israelites rested. If they were gonna call themselves followers of God, they were to, first of all, he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and body. And then secondly, he said, you need to love your neighbor as yourself. Finally saying that all the prophets and all of the law hangs or literally depends on these two commandments. These are the, the two pillars that hold the whole religious roof up, if you will. And up to this point, there would have been no disagreement with anything that Jesus had to say, except when it came to defining who is my neighbor. Love your neighbor, who is my neighbor? You see, the rabbis defined my neighbor as being my fellow Jew, that neighborliness was extended to those who were of the same faith and the same culture, the same ethnicity, but it didn't extend to the non-Jew, and especially to the Samaritan or the Roman or the Greek. In fact, they would teach that a good Jew should hate all that were not of the faith because they were spiritually tainted and association with them would be a threat to your faith. And I emphasize that point because I've seen that same attitude expressed even within the Christian community today. That sometimes we like to put up barriers and draw lines of demarcation between us and the rest of the culture and the society. There's a, a cloistering mentality that sometimes we buy into, the idea that we're gonna have our holy huddle and we're not going to allow other things to come in and affect us, that we keep the, the non-Christian world at arm's length because we don't want the infectiousness of their faithlessness to damage us. Even as Edersheim writes in his Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, he said there were, it was common for them to say, especially towards the Samaritan, may it said, for example, rabbis would say, may I never set my eyes on a Samaritan. May I never be thrown into company with him. To partake of their bread is like eating swine's flesh. 
I don't get that one. I love pig. Anyway. <laughs> but that's why Jesus' entire life, not just his words, but the entire direction and, and, and posture of his entire life spoke of something in dramatic contrast to that. He didn't just say, love your enemies. He loved his enemies. And so it was that they were confounded and frustrated with him. When he talks about things like the good Samaritan in the mind of a Jew, there was no such thing. That was an oxymoronic statement. A Samaritan was never good. And to call him good didn't make any sense, particularly when he held up this Samaritan, this heretic, and said he was more loving towards a wounded Jewish man than were the priests and the Levites who couldn't be bothered and couldn't be stained by his wounds. Or when Jesus, we're told, sat with a Samaritan woman of ill repute and which was a, in itself a triple indictment. She was a Samaritan, she was a woman, and she was of ill repute. What was Jesus doing? And his own disciples came and were shocked and mortified at the moment they arrived and basically said, what are you doing? You see, Jesus didn't allow himself to create those kind of barriers that human nature almost always erects between us and someone else. That when we see other people, it's impossible for us to have a neutral point of view. We either become indifferent to them or else we are attracted to them or we tend to push them away. But the idea that every person I encounter is intended by God to be an object and a potential of one being a recipient of my unlimited love and care and concern, well, most of us would say it's above and beyond my capacity, and, and to a degree, I would simply say you're, that's true. But what these men did in, in Jesus' day is they justified this kind of relational selectivity by extending the prohibitions that God had placed on association with the Canaanites when Israel came into the land to everybody who was not part of their community. When he had said to them in Exodus and Deuteronomy, be careful not to take, make a treaty with those who live in the land where you are going because they will be a snare among you. Make no covenant with them and show no favor to them and do not intermarry with them. That many of the rabbis would say that, you know, when you come across a, a Samaritan or a Gentile and they're in peril, he said, do nothing to increase their peril, but also do nothing to deliver them from it. And Jesus said, no, if you see someone in peril, you should reach out to them, even if it brings peril into your life. But what this tended to develop in them sociologically, if you will, was kind of a, a nationalistic, a messianic, apocalyptic racism, if you will. And what I mean by that, they believed that one day God was going to send the Messiah and he would exalt them as his chosen people, his favored people above and beyond all others. That the various ways that they distinctively wore their hair and their beards and their clothing, they believed were all indications of their special position, their special status with God. And I would to, that, that that kind of thinking had stopped with, a, with their generation, but it's something that keeps on reappearing in human history throughout, even within Christianity, so that certain people have certain kinds of dressings that say to them, we are more spiritual, we are more holy, we are more sacred or sanctified and separated because of what we wear or what we do not wear. They believed that one day God was going to come and destroy all the Gentile powers, that he would set up his eternal kingdom on the earth, and with the Jews by his side, he would rule over the nation with a rod of iron, and he would bestow riches and powers upon Israel and servitude to the Gentile nations. Well, you have to understand, this kind of message was extremely inviting to people who had suffered military occupation by foreign powers, who had un suffered economic oppression through taxation and confiscation, who had gone through religious persecution, both for, first from the Greeks and then eventually from the Romans. 
That message that one day God will avenge you on your enemies had an attraction to people who were suffering and oppressed. But you see, their bigger concern was they knew from their history that all of these promises of God were dependent upon Israel maintaining their purity and not becoming defiled by the corrupting, idolatrous influences of the culture which they were a part, especially of the Greek culture and its attractive images and the Roman culture with its power and wealth. And that's why what the rabbis did was they constructed what they called a hedge or a fence around the Mosaic law. It was first called oral law because it was the teachings of respected rabbis that were passed on verbally, but eventually it became codified. It was written down and became what we today refer to as the Talmud. And one of the most amazing things to me, and as I have encountered and been around Orthodox Jews, that the Talmud in many ways carries more force and more weight in their lives than does the Torah or the scriptures themselves. These things in the Gospels are referred to as the traditions of the elders. In fact, Jesus was frequently rebuked for breaking these. We read in Matthew 15 too, it says, Why do your disciples break the traditions of the elders by eating with unwashed hands? Now, you have to understand, I got in trouble for breaking the traditions of my mother when I didn't wash my hands before I sat down at the table. But it wasn't a matter of holiness. You see, Moses never said anything about washing of hands as a way of purifying oneself, and yet this rabbinic tradition that was imposed upon the people of Jesus' day, and even up into the present time, was that you kept oneself ritually pure by washing away through water any kind of incidental defiling contact that you might have had with Gentiles or others who weren't faithful. And this became the rule of life. Even today when you're in Israel and you go into a public restroom, you'll find that there are cups there separate for just doing this very thing. They'll put water in the cup and then they'll pour it over their hands in a very distinct ritual way, not because they're trying to remove bacteria, but rather they're trying to remove spiritual defilement. Jesus rejected these traditions as being extra-biblical legalisms. Religious rules that had no real significance or meaning or import to God whatsoever. Because he recognized that what it led to was a greater sin in the eyes of God. And that was to become loveless towards other people. That the problem of Phariseeism as a whole is that they were people who were passionate for God, but somehow that passion didn't translate into compassion for other people. That God wants us to be passionate in our faith, but if that doesn't translate into compassion towards other people, the truth that you believe has no profoundness to it. The profundity of our faith is that it creates in us a love for those who otherwise would be unloved and even considered beyond love. And that's why Jesus said to him, why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? And the example he was giving to them was one we touched on before, where they were told to care and honor and love and support their families, their parents in their old age, and yet they had excused it by creating legal loopholes from which they could get around having to do it. You see, there's no greater example of this kind of distortion of this passage than just simply following these traditions rather than following what the law actually said. God actually commanded the Jews to have humane treatment, not just to their fellow Jew, but even to their enemies and to those who were strangers. And when we see the word stranger in text, we have to understand that there's a xenophobic view of it, the idea that someone who is not part of us. You know what xenophobia is, don't you? This idea that anybody who is not part of us is against us and therefore we view them with suspicion because their language, their culture, their appearance, their dress is different from ours and they don't conform. So we view them as being separate and we hold them at a distance. 
And the potential for that was greater in these ancient times than it certainly is even in our more modern times where we're more exposed to the differences of the world. But Leviticus said, if a stranger lives as a foreigner with you in your land, you shall do him no wrong. He shall be to you as native born and you shall love him as yourself. Exodus says, if you come across your enemy's ox or donkey wandering off, be sure to take it back to him. If you see the donkey of someone who hates you fallen down under its load, do not leave it there. Be sure you help him with it. <laughs> we might contemporize it. When I see the guy who is out to hurt me, slides off the road in the middle of the median because of snow and ice rather than driving by and saying, you got what you deserve. He says, actually, pull over and help him to get out of the ditch. In fact, Proverbs said, went on to say in chapter 24, do not rejoice with when your enemy falls and do not let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Essentially, Jesus was telling them to not hate your enemy because it was an anti-biblical, unholy addition to the Word of God that only had the ability to foster hatred. Or as one commentator put it, he says, in such an atmosphere, it was impossible for hatred to starve. It had plenty to feed on. Can I suggest to you that we live in that kind of society today? In fact, I was thinking about this. I, I, uh, um, I love the Jason Bourne movies. And as I was reflecting on this passage, I thought, from James Bond to Jason Bourne, there would be no action movies if it wasn't for vengeance and hatred and settling of scores. A whole genre of movies would disappear to my chagrin. But think about it for a moment. I mean, I had to suddenly confront this in my own heart and saying, what is it that's so appealing to seeing the bad guys who are getting away with it suddenly being taken care of by some vigilante justice? And I realized that it's because I give myself permission to view certain people beyond the pale of God's love and be no longer of value to him. And I think even as we wrestle as a nation with the issue of immigration and illegal immigrants and all the rest of that, and it's a complicated situation and a complicated conversation, but one of the things you and I have to commit to as followers of Jesus is that in the midst of that discussion, we don't give ourselves permission to being unloving and unkind and ungracious. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. You know, recently, some of our folks are very committed to sharing Christ to the immigrant populations in our community. They had a gathering recently, had 65 people from Syria and Iraq and Iran and, and India and all these different places coming together. And they came because they saw in this community a willingness to love them and to befriend them and to include them because what they experience is pretty much exclusion on a regular basis. I remember talking with one Egyptian lady who told me it's so hard because people look at me and call me a terrorist and I've lived here for 30 years and raised my family here. A committed follower of Jesus. Now Jesus wasn't denying that some people are going to choose to be our enemies. I mean, even the word that he uses, ekthros, it's... <laughs> It's uh, someone who is actively hostile, hating and opposing someone else. Jesus told us that there will always be people, he said in John, who will hate the light. Paul said there will always be those who refuse to love the truth. 
And he said, sometimes people will become your enemies simply because you tell them the truth. Which is why Jesus warned us in advance in, in Matthew. He said, men will hate you because of me. You will be persecuted and put to death and hated by all nations because of me. In other words, there's going to be no place in the world that you can go and that people are going to warmly embrace you because you're a follower of Jesus. He said in John, if the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. And if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. And that is why the world hates you. They will treat you this way because of my name. They do not know the one who sent me. I'm sure you've experienced it. I certainly experience it on an ongoing basis that people write to me and communicate with me in various ways and in what I consider to be a very antagonistic, a very angry, even hateful way because of some of the stuff that I say. Because what I say is, well, God says this. And it comes contrary to their lifestyle. And they hate that fact that you're saying it. And it's really easy to draw back and to become defensive and to say, I know you are, but what am I? Instead of just simply saying, you know, if you knew Jesus, you'd understand where I'm coming from. When someone is living in disobedience or disregard of the truth of God, they often will react instinctively because it's almost like you're standing on their air hose. The very thing they're trying to breathe in that they think will bring them happiness and fulfillment and you come in and just stand on that hose and say, no, you're breathing in death. They're going to push you away. They feel like a drowning man or someone who's suffocating because you're standing in the way or hindering their very lifeline, at least as they believe it. And Jesus wanted us to understand that that reaction is normal Christianity. When Peter said, do not be surprised by the fiery trial, and in the context he's speaking about persecution from those who are resentful or threatened or hateful towards the gospel. He says, when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. In fact, Paul said to Timothy, in fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And he, Jesus even took it even further when he said, woe to you when all men speak well of you. That's a hard one for me. I want to be liked. I want people to say, oh, he's such a nice guy. He says, woe to you. When that happens, everybody says, ah, he's the greatest. Because the reality is you're probably not standing for anything. Especially in the atmosphere of our culture today, if you take a stand for anything, you're going to find 50% of the world, the nation's going to be on the other side of that issue and is going to call you a blue meanie. Now, understand, that does not give us permission to be obnoxious jerks. But if you never do anything that offends somebody, you're doing something wrong or you're not doing anything at all. You're holding your peace when there's times you probably should speak up. You may be, in fact, be guilty of what Jesus said about hiding your light under a basket. But the challenge in all of this is how in the world am I supposed to respond in love when people are wrongfully treating me badly. How do, I, how do I do that in love? You know, <clears throat> I think there are a few things that we need to keep in mind in those moments. First of all, I think we need to remember that it is God's will and Christ's command. <laughs> he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This isn't one of those things we can opt in or opt out of, we can choose to do. This is something that's incumbent upon me as a follower of Jesus. If I'm going to truly follow Jesus, I need to endeavor to respond in a loving way. And we have to recognize that love is not simply a feeling, but it's an action that produces a feeling. 
It's not something that's based upon our emotions. It's something that's based upon the truth and the command and the will of God. I have no option but to love people, especially those who are hateful towards us. I have an obligation. This is the command of God. This is the will of God. And I may be sounding terribly repetitious here because I just don't want us to miss that point. When it's all said and done and I say to myself, well, I, I don't know how I can love that person you have to come to grips with the fact, but this is God's will for which he has commanded you, which probably will, like with me, it drives me to my knees and I say, oh God, give me the love that is not there right now. Help me to forgive. Help me to care. Bleed out that desire for a, a Jason Bourne moment in my life. And help me, Lord, not to try to become one of the Avengers. The secondly, we need to remember that God loves those people as much as he loves you. When he makes a statement, he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. That goes against some of our theological preconditions. I mean, we have this kind of idea that if I'm faithful to God, it's going to manifest itself in my bottom line. If I'm faithful to God, the sun is going to shine on my side of the street and it's going to rain on their side. Well, in the Middle East, actually, the guy who gets the rain is the guy who's considered to be the blessed one. We live in a different part of the world, obviously. Please stop snowing. But he says, all you have to do is just look at the world around you and realize there are people who live blessed lives and that blessing comes from God for reasons that you and I may never be able to understand. But he says God is generously and fruitfully bestowing his grace and his bounty and his goodness on people because he loves them. That some people are one to God because of the generosity of God. Some are one to God, Paul says, by him taking through adversity. And I've always told God, I volunteer to be the guy who gets the generosity. <laughs> but I've found he has done both. I've had incredible generosity, and I've had a great deal of adversity like you have in my life. And I think I've learned more about God and his love through that adversity than I ever did through the generosity. Understand that God loves them just as much as he loves you. But I know the Bible. Praise God. You probably also brush your teeth and wear shoes. The reality is God loves you, but he loves them too. And there's a, there's a safety net in that, friends. There's a safety net because if I know that God loves people at their worst, when I'm at my worst, I know that God loves me too. But when you think that God only loves people who are getting it all right, then the moment you don't get it right, you're going to feel under that same condemnation and judgment. You see, it can be a double-edged sword. But if I believe in my heart that God is generous and gracious and loving and merciful and kind and forgiving to every man at all times, I know that when I'm not at my best, God hasn't changed his attitude towards me, that he is the same today, yesterday, and forever. And there's a great comfort in that. The thirdly, I think we remember to, need to remember that regardless of how bad they are, that used to be you. Or as Paul said to the Corinthians, that is what some of you were. But you've been washed, you've been sanctified, you've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God as Paul said to the Colossians, once you were enemies, there was a day when you, by your very choices and lifestyle, were an enemy of God, an adversary of God, that you may not have consciously sat down and said, I'm going to wear uh, the black robe of a satanic priest, but nonetheless, the things that you were doing and the effects that you were having were just as wicked, just as diabolical. When I look back on my life before I knew Christ and 
I thank you, I'm thankful that I came to Christ at 19 because if I'd had more time, I probably would have dug a hole so deep that I don't know I could have found my way out. But the simple fact was that God loved me when I was doing some really, really, really evil and wicked things. But fourthly, we need to always remember that we reap what we sow. When Jesus warned his disciples, he said, you know, all who draw the sword will die by the sword. When James warned us, he said, man's anger does not bring about the righteous life that God desires. When Jesus told us to do to others as we would have them do to us, he, he's telling us that there is this equation in the universe that there's a cause and effect rebound in all things and if we are unloving it will rebound to us if we want to be loved we need love if we want mercy we need to be merciful that there's a reciprocity in the universe that affects us all and we need to keep that in mind that that's a question, how would I want someone to view me? When I see people that are caught up in all sorts of unfortunate and hurtful behaviors and lifestyles, and, and I see them influencing other people and drawing them into th things, when I, when I watch, the sad thing is when I watch you know, political figures and national leaders who uh, have to know that they're not telling the truth. They have to know that they're lying and distorting reality. And I sit there and find myself, as my wife said, would you stop watching that stuff? Because <laughs> I'm walking around the kitchen going, I can't believe that guy. <laughs> she says, just stop watching it. <laughs> I think she should have said to me, or stop loving, start loving them. <laughs> It doesn't occur to us in those moments, it does it, to drop to our knees and say, Lord Jesus, have mercy upon that man. Oh, on that woman, I pray that they would come to know you, that they would, you would save their soul because there's a day of reckoning that lies ahead of them that is so much more horrible where no lie will be able to even penetrate. No deception will, will be able to sus be sustained. Everything will be revealed and they will stand naked before God and have to give account. Oh God, have mercy upon them. Because friends, we need to realize that there is more at stake in this whole situation than just getting our political way. There are souls that are in the balance. Eternity that's at stake. And when I find myself spitting vitriol at somebody, even if it's in the privacy of my own home, I would have to say, God, forgive me, because you love them. You died for them, just as you died for me. Forgive my arrogance that assumes that somehow I am better. That fifthly, we have to keep in mind that God will reward us. Man may not necessarily reward us. <laughs> you know, if we love people who are unloving and we have this assumption that if we do so, they'll, they'll respond in the same way. It's not always the case. Many years ago when my wife and I were first married, we lived in Denver, Colorado. We lived in, this, in the downtown, the grungiest part. We were involved in a mission to reach the drug addicts and the prostitutes and all those kind of people who were, you know, just being damaged by life in a major way. And I remember we had this, as I look out our kitchen back door, they had a neighbor who had a, a plot of land and it had a pile of garbage. I mean, it was just stacked up. And every day I'd see him come out the back door and just throw his garbage on the pile. And I thought to myself, that's, that's terrible. I'm going gonna, 
I'm going to do something to bless him. And so I pulled my pickup there one day, and I, got, got, and I loaded all of that garbage in the back of my picket, and I raked it all up and got it nice and clean and took it to the dump and paid to have it dumped. And, and I came back, and the next morning I'm sitting there with my cup of coffee waiting for him to come out and go, that must have been done by a child of God. Jesus, save me. <laughs> I'm just, I'm picturing this all in my mind, this great dramatic moment. And I see him coming out of his back door and he walks to the same spot and he just dumped his garbage in the same spot and turned around and went back. And before long, the pile was back. And I said, Lord. And he spoke to me. <laughs> you weren't motivated by love, you were motivated by pride. You thought your good works would convert him. You're looking to man for him to honor you for what you did. The truth is, you just need to love this guy. And so I showed my love to him by putting my garbage on his pile. No, <laughs> no, not really. I just... <laughs> But Jesus said it back in, in, in verse 10 of this same chapter. He said, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I mean, it's an indication that you are part of the kingdom when you're treated badly by people because of your faith in Christ. It's an indication that this is the evidence. I am part of the kingdom. The, in, for the Jews, their evidence, they thought, was in the way they cut their hair, the way they cut their beard or didn't cut their beard, the, the robes that they wore, the, 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 the way they carried their life, the food they ate or they didn't eat. They had this whole list of things that they thought, these are evidences. Uh, most importantly was circumcision. I am circumcised so that every time you went to the Lurchine, it stood out who you were. And he said, none of those things are guarantees you're part of the kingdom. But when people hate you for my name's sake, that's evidence that you're part of my kingdom. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. When I was 20, heaven was an abstraction. At 68, it's my next stop. I mean, it does, there's a wonderful thing about getting older is that you, you really do see things with a different lens and, and understand things and feel things differently. And you realize that this is not an abstraction. This is a reality that one day, regardless of what happens here, the good, the bad, the ugly, one day I'm going to be in heaven and God is going to reward me for the good that I've done for his sake. And that's what keeps somebody like me up in a place like this all these years. I can't tell you how many times the idea of selling insurance was very attractive. Selling cars was like, I could do this. <laughs> At the end of the day, you sit there and go, okay, God, you called me to obedience. And I don't re regret that. Be honest. This, I'm kind of in a sweet space. You guys are so nice. I, mean, I love you guys, man. You could, you're really nice. Just don't cross me. <laughs> As I point out to my wife from time to time, don't make me go to Genesis. <laughs> but sixth, and, and maybe last of all, I'll tell you when I get to the end if it is last of all, but sixthly, Never forget that our ability to love other people is our major distinctive. It's not our Bibles, important as that is. It's not the fact that you're here this morning, which is hugely important. But our distinctive that we are his followers. Jesus said, you'll know you're my disciples by your love one for another. He said, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? <laughs> and if you greet only your brothers, and the idea of greet there is that you welcome them in. It's the idea of hospitality, not just saying, hey, how are you? Hey, how are you? Hey. No, it's, it's inviting people into your world. He says, he says, what are you doing more than others? 
Don't even the pagans do that? Even the most wicked person has friends who share in their wickedness. But he says, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be the sons of your Father in heaven. Then in the end of the day, if you want to look like Jesus, then it's going to come in your ability to love people who are for the most part unlovely. Honestly, I think this is the hardest thing that the Bible tells us to do. It's what makes uh, truly being a Christian so very difficult. Because if he just simply took out this one requirement to love our enemies, being a Christian would be relatively easy. It's easy to divide the world into the good and the bad, the true and the false, the right and the wrong, and sometimes we take such pride in our ability to be right and other people to be so wrong that we think that that is enough. And yet when Jesus, when Paul said to us, we need to speak the truth, but we need to speak it in love, that's critical. Because I found that sometimes speaking the truth is easy, but to speak it with love makes it a hundred times more difficult and more challenging. But we all know the difference. We all know the difference when somebody confronts us with error in our life and you can feel the love in their heart for you as opposed to somebody who's going to confront you with error in your life simply to gain dominion over you. We know the difference. It's, it's the character. It's completely in contrast. It happens in every area of our life, doesn't it? How many of us deal with it in our marriage relationships? If a spouse comes to us and said, can I talk to you about something? And we can tell before they even open their mouth that whether or not this is going to be communicated as an expression of love or an expression of anger and resentment or frustration or futility. And just that very thing can be night and day. We know it in our jobs when somebody comes and says, hey, I need to talk to you about your job performance. And you can tell whether somebody's saying it because they really care and they want to help us to grow or whether they just simply are frustrated and impatient, angry, and want to find a way to get rid of us. And that's why Jesus calls us to that internal introspection. I mean, sitting down and saying, God, am I doing this in love? It's not just enough to speak the truth. Is, is, it, is it being delivered with that kind of compassionate, gracious, kind heart that God has towards me? Passion without compassion is false religion. The world is filled with false religion. I pray that I'm not, because sometimes I think I am. Sometimes I can be so driven by the rightness of a cause that I don't even think about whether it's being done, communicated in love or grace. And I share that give you those moments of self-disclosure because I think you're safe people to t say that to because I know it's true of you. I was talking to somebody a week or so ago and they were, actually it was just this last week and they were going off about somebody who was struggling with pornography. And I was listening to them and, I, and when they finished I said, can I ask you a question? They said, yeah. I said, have you ever struggled with pornography? And suddenly they got uncomfortable and silent. I said, you've come to me in judgment of this brother's struggle, but you're hiding the fact that you understand the struggle because you struggle with it. <laughs> Wouldn't it be more effective 
if you were to come alongside that brother and saying, hey, brother, I understand your struggle. Let's struggle together to overcome. Father, I pray that you'd help us to have the heart that you speak of in this word. As I look at my own self under the light of your introspection and truth, Lord, how I see that I fall so short, that I don't love anywhere near the degree to which you loved us. And I know that's true of all of us in this room. This is one of those truths that produces so much guilt so quickly, it makes being a preacher easy. But a profound truth doesn't lead us to profound living. That is just a, a futile exercise in religion. God, we pray, we plead with you, God. Give us loving hearts. Give us those kind of hearts that don't excuse sin, but also compassionately understand why it's there. Don't let us be people who pretend, Lord, that we don't battle the same things because you said we're men of like passions. We all have the same issues, the same hang-ups. We all live in the same culture with all of its verbiage and influences, Lord, and we find it hard to stand apart. Deliver us from the temptation to simply want to cut all the cords with our culture and become this isolated group, becoming like the Strawberry Hills fools on a hill sitting off someplace, but never really selling our robes with the sins and the tragedy of other people's lives. Help us to care, Father, the way you care. We ask in Jesus' name.